Have you ever wondered where technology is taking us? What's next? What could possibly be new and exciting? What is coming our way in regards to technology and how it affects every area of our life, both personally and professionally? We are blessed with one of the most brilliant people in the world in regards to technology and beyond. Cue the intro. Welcome to The Real Deal, where we get real about what it takes to succeed. Whether it's wealth, health, relationships, or finding your purpose, we talk to the masters to uncover the secrets to defying the odds and creating your own rock star legacy. I'm Doug, and after working on multiple Grammy-winning records as an author, transformational speaker, and your personal translightenment coach, I'm committed to your growth and success. And now, here's the real deal. All right. Well, before we begin, I must acknowledge our sponsor. Are you feeling stressed out, perhaps overwhelmed by trepidation on what's going on today in the world? Perhaps you need to bust through your anxiety with your guided hypnotic meditation. Go ahead to guidedhypnotic.com and download your free anxiety-busting guided hypnotic meditation. That's guidedhypnotic.com. It's my uh, sponsorship. <laughs> All right. I like it. Here we go. Amazing friend here, one of the most brilliant people I know, but his brilliance is only exceeded by his integrity, his heart, and his incredible commitment to uh, things bigger than he, and um, we'll, we'll get into that, but let's uh, share the, I ripped this off your website here, so um, I hope it's current. Is it? It is current. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> Throughout his career, Scott Koslowski has stood in the nexus between technology and humanity. He has worked to define and help organizations discover the ideal blend of technology and human effort. He is widely recognized for his ability to forecast how technology will impact organizations, industries, and our world. He is the founder and principal of FPOV, as well as a renowned consultant, speaker, and author. Scott's unique perspectives on technology, business culture, and the future allow him to travel the globe, guiding senior executives and organizations ranging from Fortune 500 to universities and nonprofits and countless professional associations and coalitions. He has worked with organizations such as American Fidelity Assurance Company, Roche, IBM, General Motors, Georgia Pacific, Lee Grand, International Franchise Association, and Great Clips. He regularly speaks in front of major conferences, helping leaders in countless industries improve the way they integrate technology into their organizations. He's the author of four books, including his latest title, Did God Create the Internet? The Impact of Technology on Humanity. Oh, my goodness. So, first of all, you have to say, uh, we first met when you were speaking at uh, Tony Robbins Business Mastery. And uh, you are definitely one of the best speakers to be at that uh, place. And those events, every time we saw you were, of course, um, you know, just blown away by your information and, and what you had to share and your, you know, your acute look at where is technology taking us. So how has technology been supporting us lately? <laughs> oh, wow. 
Yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting year. I, I read I read somebody made a comment. I thought it was an interesting comment. They said that the digital transformation has moved five years and three months, uh, and I thought that was an interesting comment. Uh, obviously, the, the emergency work from home uh, is something that you know no one thought would ever happen at the beginning of the year. By the middle of the year, uh, you know we are now much more aware of what it means when you send millions and millions of people home to work. And we didn't have the technology to probably do it quite as easily five years ago. Right. Uh, but there, there has been a combination of technologies that give people remote access to business applications, uh, you know, video conferencing, uh, just a, enough tools came together that without a lot of pre-planning in most cases, right, this emergency work from home uh, that the pandemic has become, uh, you know, that, that has certainly highlighted what technology can do uh, for us. And it's really put us in an interesting state where for the rest of the year, a lot of organizations are trying to figure out, all right, well, what, what do we go back to? Uh, you know, we, we, we did some, some survey work uh, and we were asked a question um, how likely is your company or your organization uh, to go back to uh, the same model of five days a week, you know, everybody commuting, coming into the office? And over 75% of the organization said, we're not going back to the way we were before. Mm. And, and that is completely supported by technology. 100%. Now, with uh, one of the things I, I've been to several of your events, and, and I just need to preface the heart that you have and, and how genuine and authentic you and your family are is, is tremendous. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer of, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. And you have proven that mm-hmm. to be so. Um, because you're, again, I, I, I really appreciate your welcoming, you know, me the way we met and then just kept the relationship going is you know, it's just been unique and rare and, and as technically, um, you know, like you're, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but as technically savvy you are, you're more heart than tech, if that makes sense. And it's, it's huge. Yeah. I, I think there is, a, there's a misnomer, you know, in some cases that technology people, especially if you look at programmers, that they're non-social, you know, or that they like machines better than they like people. Uh, you know, I, 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 my mother was a counselor all my life. And so all my life, you know, she has counseled people and I've, I've seen that side of the world, uh, you know, of how important it is to be a good human being. And how important it is to seek enlightenment and to try to improve ourselves. Uh, and so, yes, it just so happens that I, the, you know, some of the gifts I have are over in the technology world and being able to predict where technology is going. Uh, but as, but as a, a person, you know, I, I'm very, I'm very interested in what does it mean to be a, uh, a successful and, um, valuable human being outside of the technology? And then how do you merge those two things together? Well, and that's obviously clear with, with humology and, and where you've seen all this going. Um, we'll bounce around timelines a bit uh, because obviously we have a lot of crazy stuff going on now, but just some pretext into how you got here and the the whole idea of future point of view. Um, where did you start? Like, were you always into technology? Were you an early adapter to uh, things that came out? 
Well, I mean, I started in 1980 uh, in technology, so yeah, a long, long time ago now. Uh, my dad was a programmer at Boeing, uh, which I didn't, you know, I, he was not a role model to me that I said, wow, I want to be a programmer because my dad was a programmer. Um, it was nothing like that. But when I got out of high school, I started thinking about what do I want to do? I didn't want to go to college. Uh, I hated school. Uh, and I thought, you know, there, there was a, a world of new technologies, like PCs were first coming out, you know, not even the IBM PC, but, you know, Commodore and, uh, you know, the TRS-80, right, at Radio Shack, right? Th those things were just starting to be used. And I thought, all right, you know, technology is probably going to be a, a pretty strong field. Maybe that's, that's an area I should play in. That was really you know, that, that, that you go way back, you know, go back 40 years, right? That, that's how it all started for me is I needed to self-teach. I needed to learn something on my own since I wasn't going to go to college. And I happened to choose uh, learning how to build computers and do programming. And, uh, you know, that's where it all started. So you were like actually writing code and that kind of stuff. The whole if then, if I recall on the Commodore 64, how to get something does I think the, the, the peak of my technological career when it came to that and how to have something repeat, but you were like building the games and such. Yeah, it was crazy. It was, no, I built business applications, Even back um, then. not ever games. Yeah. Right. So I worked for a company that uh, put me as a, a lowly person in their new computer department and, uh, and just turned me loose and you had to teach yourself everything. So I, yeah, I remember teaching myself basic, uh, and then writing uh, an inventory program, right? Just a program to maintain inventory at the company that we were at. And I remember I, I figured out, for instance, how to record sound files. And if somebody did something wrong in my inventory program, the computer would talk to them. Hmm. And in 1981, you know, people thought that was like witchcraft, right? Because that, 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 we had mainframes, right, at the company I was at. And I was working on PCs. And it, it was just, I think back now, it's just crazy. The things that, that uh, we did, um, one of the things I will never forget, we had a mainframe. It was a data point mainframe. And I had PCs that we were working with. And uh, I heard that there was a way you could create a cable that would make your PC appear as a terminal to the mainframe. And so I, I found somebody who, who sent me a wiring diagram, and I made a wire, like I made a cable. I soldered it myself, right, you know, put it all together, uh, and then plugged my PC into the mainframe, you know, put a, a floppy, a five and a quarter inch floppy drive that made my PC look like a, 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 a terminal. And all of a sudden, my PC was a terminal on the data point mainframe. Uh, it, it, I mean, it, I was experimenting with things like that. And it's so funny now, right? Because no kidding, Doug, it, it was like witchcraft to the people at the company. I'll bet. And so, yeah, that's, that's where I started. So you were there, obviously, at the beginning when there was very little regulation, there was no compliance and so forth. And obviously, you talk about, you know, the witchcraft, the mindset. How did you notice, and, and is that how you also started to develop the future point of view and the integration on, you know, compliance, regulation, and of course, you know, user relationships, like, you know, how that all kind of combined? You know, it, I, re, 
it started for me at 19 years old. I, I remember one of the early things that happened to me, I was, uh, our company was selling PCs before IBM had PCs. We were selling like Victor 9000 PCs. And we had a lot of banking clients. And so we had a bank that bought a PC and they wanted to do asset liability management, right? I remember asset liability management on this PC. And so we went and we installed it at this bank and, and the banker's 65 years old. He's looking over my shoulder. And uh, I said, I said, you know, someday there will be PCs on everybody's desk, right? You won't need the mainframe because you'll have personal computers on everybody's desk. And I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, son, that will never happen. We will never give people computing power on their desks. I, I mean, I, it, the fact that I remember that moment now, right, all these years later, uh, I was 19, I think, when that conversation happened, and it was a bit of a challenge to me because in my, in my mind, I was making a prediction to him of something that would come true, and he completely disagreed with me. And, of course, it turned out I, I was right, right? Uh, and I wasn't always right, by the way. There were predictions I made, you know, over the next three, four years when people, when I was talking to people, some of them didn't come true. But I think it started a – pardon me? They didn't come true in the timeline you predicted or just not at all, like that something was Not at all. Not, okay. not, not, not at all. I, I remember specifically people asking me, for instance, questions about software and me giving them advice that later I realized my advice was completely wrong about that piece of software. Uh, and so I learned that there's a gift or there's a, there's a skill in being able to kind of predict where things are going or where technologies are going, where trends are going. Uh, and, and I think I just became interested in it because of the field I was in. Technology was starting to blow up and, uh, you know, more and more people were interested in my ideas about where things might go. And so it started young and, you know, just kind of blossomed through the 80s. Uh, and, and I'm blessed to live the timeline I've lived in because, you know, during the 80s, we got really the first versions of the Internet and we got email and, it, you know, it got way past PCs. And in every case, I was always on the edge of that. And then people would ask me, where is this going? Mm. And so, you know, by the time the 90s roll around, I had gotten pretty good at predicting you know, where, where technology was going to go. I'd made enough mistakes, honestly, right? I, I, I made enough bad predictions. I started to learn, okay, well, you know, how, what, is the, what are the filters you use to actually make a prediction accurately? And so you were a PC guy when Mac came out or Apple. Um, were you, did you see that turning into what it became? Were you an early adopter with Mac? I was not an early adopter. I learned them right off the bat, played around with them, but I didn't use them personally. Uh, you know, but in the early days, they were, uh, I hate to say this because, you know, everything I use is Apple now, but uh, they were a bit more of a toy. I mean, it, it was just for somebody doing graphics, you know, or somebody building games. I mean, they had more of a specific use. And so I was in the business world. And so it just wasn't something that I adopted. Uh, now, I, I think I still was a fairly early adopter of Apple. Uh, but, you know, it, it was not something that I adopted until Steve Jobs' second time around. Okay. So, and that was after, for a while, I remember Apple had licensed and you could get, um, I guess, a, a generic Apple uh, product. 
mm-hmm. um, which was an interesting time for for some who were into it and they could get a basically they could put together one similar to the way PCs were being done. And then right. And that stopped. So you primarily business, when did you start getting into the, the marketing aspect of it? Um, and part of this is also going to lead to kind of also where we're at right now and looking at similarities to just how things are done. But how did marketing start becoming part of your, um, you know, your lexicon? Uh, late 80s. So in the, the late 80s, uh, I was um, I had just finished working on the Haldeman Diaries with H.R. Haldeman uh, from Nixon's, Nixon's chief of staff. Uh, and I had met some uh, people in Washington, D.C. while I was doing that work. Uh, and uh, the, th- the uh, two other guys and I started talking about that we thought digital was going to play a role in marketing. And at that time, uh, you know, this is when AOL was brand new. You know, there was really no internet at that point. There was no web. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but uh, we had this idea of uh, what would a digital advertising agency look like? And so uh, we, we basically built a company that started off and the first, all we did, our, all we did was build CDs, CD-ROMs that were used for marketing and then we built uh, almost all of AOL's banners. And so if you remember in the early days of AOL, they did a lot of banners and, you know, you would click on the banner and then go to some advertiser. Mm-hmm. Well, we had learned how to design the banners to get the highest click through. So, you know, we, we started uh, a digital marketing company in the late 80s before that digital marketing was really even a word. Wow. And so that that's how it happened It's just these other two guys and I built a company, which we eventually turned into the company webcast.com. Oh, wow. Cool. So, and I'm, I'm gathering that that's where you started really seeing the relationship of humans and technology. And that was, it sounds like the beginning of it, but when did humology and, and that philosophy really start to come into play for you? You know, we could we could probably back it up to in the early to mid '80s. Uh, you had a lot of people writing software, uh, and uh, you know, this was before there was an app for everything, right? So, you know, for people who are too young to remember this, uh, or people who are old enough to remember it, back in the '80s, there was an explosion of people writing applications, and a lot of them on five and quarter inch floppy disks. You know, uh, that you'd either buy or somebody would hand to you. Uh, there were a couple of applications that were, um, I, I remember one of them was all about uh, uh, your physical life, right? You know, and helping you physically uh, just to be healthy. You know, and I remember when that came out and it was so crude, right? But I remember the first time I ever saw it and thought, you know, this is, it had an interesting impact on people when they actually used the program to try to figure out how to eat or exercise better. You know, there were all kinds of things like that coming out back in the 80s. And I would see these programs because I was a bit at a nexus where I would see a lot of things. I would watch people use them and I'd watch the impact on people. And, And so it was in the 80s that it really started to get across to me that, 
computers were going to have a powerful impact on people's behavior. Well, you know, then when the internet came out in the, you know, in the middle nineties, right? Early to middle nineties and email came out. Well, now all of a sudden a whole nother door opened because now it wasn't just a piece of software on your computer. Your computer was attached to everybody else's computer. Uh, and, and immediately became obvious to me. I mean, the moment I saw the internet for the first time, uh, which the first site I ever went to was whitehouse.gov because it was one of the first websites that was out there. Uh, and uh, by the way, if you went to whitehouse.com, you got a porn site. <laughs> and that, that was almost, to me, that's such a intriguing thing yeah. that, you know, two of the first, you know, 100 sites that were built on the, on the web were whitehouse.gov and whitehouse.com. One's a porn site and you know, one's the actual White House site. So the moment I saw that, I, I knew, okay, it's just a matter of time till now everybody in the world is connected. And again, coming out of the 80s where I saw what software would do to somebody's life uh, or could do for somebody's life, you know, now I thought, okay, well, now we're connecting everybody. And what is that going to do to humanity in general? So, you know, for me, it, it was 80s and, and early to middle 90s where it became really clear to me the concept of humology, right? The integration of humans and technology and that that was going to be a big thing. Uh, and ever since then, it's just been me observing and watching different flavors of that. Mm. So for, so for example, AI, you know, I look at AI now and AI has interesting implications. It, it, it is both replacing tasks that humans do and then it's augmenting tasks that humans do, right? So to me, I, I, you know, I look at AI and, and I see it as what is the impact now on, huma on humanity and then just continue to play it out, you know. But it's yet just another one of the technologies I've seen since the 80s uh, of our interfacing with the machine and then what does that do to us? And did any of that surprise you? Were there any, was there any technology that you didn't see coming or uses that you were like, wow, I didn't even think of that? Or were you kind of, as things were unfolding, as you were observing, kind of going, oh, yeah, I saw that coming, uh, you know, took longer or less time than I thought it might? You know, Doug, I, I, I'll give you a, a general answer. Uh, I am always amazed at the negative uses that people find to do with technology. Uh, I'm not, I'm not usually amazed at the positive uses, you know, the things that amplify humanity, uh, those don't, those will never surprise me. You know, we're, we're very good at solving problems and, you know, we're very good at, at doing things that help each other. I, I'm just always amazed at the way people figure out how to use technology to do something that is unhealthy, right. Or causes chaos. So, so for instance, social technologies, uh, I think it's wonderful how social technologies connect people, right? Especially, especially in our family, for instance, the older generation who's able to connect with everybody else so that they're not just sitting in a rocking chair all day long, you know, at 80 years old at their house. Right. Uh, you know, so I love that. I love that. Then at the same time, I, you know, I'll, I'll scroll through what people are posting on social technology sometimes, and, and it just breaks my heart how inane some of the stuff is or untrue, you know, some of the stuff is that people, so I, I was shocked at the negative impact of social uh, technologies. 
right? Not shocked by the positive. Right. Well, and I guess, you know, technology is energy. So it, it could really just enhance. So negative people or when they're in a negative state, use it to create more energy with it. Um, when, yeah. do you remember, I, I would think it was the 80s when the first uh, telephone, video phone came out. And I remember it was a box that you could, and it, it didn't take off. And you, what do you think the difference was? It was it just saturation and, and people used to it. Like, why wasn't it taken, like, embraced when it first came out? I mean, it was, it seemed like decades before it actually became a norm now with uh, FaceTime and Zoom here and so forth. So, so we've seen that a lot, right? I think about the Apple Newton. I mean, you know, the Apple Newton was a handheld, you know, years before a lot of other people had handhelds. Mm. And uh, I always find that interesting, right, that the Apple Newton came out, you know, again, back in the, what, early 90s and didn't go anywhere. And then the iPhone, you know, some years later goes wild. Right. And they were both mobile devices. You know, some of it has to do with the with the quality of the technology. Sometimes the early entrance, the quality just is not there. Uh, sometimes it has to do with the cost. It's just too expensive, so, you know, it doesn't have mass appeal. But I think a lot of times it's just acceptance. You know, right. it's just are people ready to accept this thing yet? Uh, and video was like that, right? I mean, we had video capabilities before years before people accepted that. You know, think about how much Zoom has blown up or video technology has blown up during this work from home. Yep. We've had this stuff for five years. We've had it for five years. You know, why, why weren't we doing this much video conferencing five years ago? Why, why were we not flying across the country for a one-hour meeting? Like, why didn't we do this five years ago? Right? There's, no, there's no technology reason. You know, this is just humanity accepting a new way of doing things. Hmm. And I think sometimes we invent things uh, from a technology standpoint. We invent things. They work really well or work pretty well. People just aren't ready for them yet. Right. So – now cutting to like more uh, current timeline, obviously no one saw all of this coming. What, how did that impact a, cause you have multiple, you know, plate spinning. You also, you have your speaking, you have all of that as you, you know, you help businesses and grow your businesses from doing that. Then at the same time, you have organizations relying on your tech savviness um, did you have a lot of this already in place, i.e. the video conferencing and all that? Was this part of your uh, future view, your high beam thoughts that people would be doing less of the flying across and so forth? You saw it coming and this just sped the process up and you already had the infrastructure in place? Yeah. Yeah, that's clearly. I, I, I don't even think so much about work from home. I think about it as distributed work. Right. The, I've been talking about the concept of distributed work for 10 years. That, that there is not, it doesn't make sense to say my company is in Cleveland and I only hire people who are around me in Cleveland. It really doesn't make sense for some of the positions. Now, if you're a manufacturer, absolutely, you need the people in Cleveland to come work at the manufacturing plant. But there's a lot of positions, marketing, right, or sales or whatever. There's a lot of positions. You don't need the people to be in Cleveland, especially if your customers are all over the country. Right. Uh, so I've been talking about distributed work for years. 
none of this was a surprise to me other than the catalytic event, right. That sped it up. That's it. I, I mean, I didn't, it, it isn't that I didn't think a pandemic might happen someday. You know, I, I, I had asked myself over the, you know, H1N1 and uh, Ebola and right. Every time we would have something like that in the back of my head, I would go, uh, someday the big one's coming. Right. Right. I mean, it, someday the big one's coming. Didn't think about it a lot. I mean, I never did the math on what that might look like. Uh, but from a technology standpoint, there's been nothing this year that I've seen that really surprises me. It, it just sped up using tools that we've already had around. So did that increase, like, was there a pivoting within your clients and said, okay, well, we can't worry about that. Let's now just kind of pivot into this technology. And then the next step is, uh, I guess, looking at the psychology, I think a lot of my experience has been a lot of the, the reason why people would say I only hire people in Cleveland is because they want to be able to monitor them. They want to make sure that they're not, you know, showing up late and coming and so forth. So new security and, and other technologies, I guess, may be part of the comfort factor that you've uh, developed. Yeah, so there's a trust level that some companies are getting that you can use a work from home model. I, I, look, the way to think about this, Doug, is um, there, there will be five different work from home models. And I think almost every organization will go to one of these five, right? Uh, either a full work from home. So, I, you know, we're a small company and we really don't need an office. Like we can just do distributed work. Let's just say I'm in the heat and air company, right? I don't need an office. Everybody's out in vans. You know, we just don't need an office anymore, right? Uh, so full work from home, partial work from home. Let's say I'm a manufacturer. I got to have some people come into the plant, but the rest of the people can all work from home. So partial work from home. Uh, voluntary work from home. Right. So uh, anybody who wants to can work from home or if you want to work from the office, you can work from the office. Right. It's your choice. Uh, a what I'll call HR mandated um, work from home or HR allowed where HR says we're going to give you 45 work from home days a year. And you can you can just pick them. Right. Whatever 45 days you want to work from home, take them. Uh, and then the last one would be a, a, a scheduled work from home. So in other words, we're all going to work together Monday, Wednesday, but we're going to work from home Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and unless you just don't want to. Like if you need to work at the office because you have a bunch of distractions at home, come to the office. But those are five different models. And I think what's going to happen is every company will move to one of those five models uh, I, I think Rare will be the company who just goes back to five days a week, everybody come in, right? Everybody commute because they've gotten the trust factor now because they probably put in a little bit better technology than they had before. Uh, you know, and they, they've realized that they can expand their workforce if they do allow work from home a little bit, uh, as opposed to if I force everybody to come into the office five days a week, I shrink my workforce, right? To only people who are willing to do that. Mm. So in the storage, it, obviously things become more cloud-based and that's made that possible as well. Um, and this sounds like a, a kind of a weird observation, but one of the reasons why it seemed that like when everything became digitized, that there was going to be less paper use. Yet for a while, it seemed like 
everything was printed out. Everything was stored, you know, separately as a sort of a redundancy or so forth, which may have been one of the reasons why there were offices. Have you found that people have gotten more used to the exclusive digital storage where they're not feeling the need to be printing out as much and that also facilitates less of a need for office space? Yeah, no, no question. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. There was, a, uh, there was an organization that we knew that had a payables process. And the payables process was people sent them invoices, uh, some on paper, some electronic. Uh, they would print checks. They would take them to the CFO. The CFO would sign all the checks, and then they would stick the checks in the mail. Right? That was their payables process. Uh, COVID happens. They have to pay bills. No one's sitting together. You can't print checks because you're not at the office. The CFO can't sign checks. Right? So they, they very quickly switched over to a fully electronic payable system and made all their vendors submit everything electronically. They okayed it electronically. They ACH the money into people's accounts. They went completely electronic and it took them about two or three weeks. Now they, they were forced to do that, right? Because of COVID, you know, cause they couldn't all go down to the office and do the process in the old way. So there's a decent amount of that, right? Of, you know, we, you can't print paper if you're not at the office or if you did print it, you can't share it with anybody. So, <clears throat> you know, this just, again, sped up, uh, it, it sped up automating processes and that comment about the digital transformation went five years and three months. That's why people say that it is because it forced companies to automate. I, I, I got, I got to laughing about how many companies rolled to Microsoft teams. Our company had been on Microsoft teams for ever since teams came out. Mm. Uh, now we had a lot of clients who called us and said, we're going on teams. Like right in the middle of this, the emergency rushed out getting everybody on teams. And again, I kind of laughed because you could have done this anytime in the last two, three years, right? But this just forced you to do it. And now a lot of them are teams bigots, right? They love teams. It's the only thing they're going to use, you know, use it from now on. Uh, so it just, it's kind of funny. But You're on Zoom right now. How come you didn't have them use teams? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I, I get it's it's so for us because we have lots of clients, you know, we have some clients they will only use WebEx and some clients that will only use Teams and will only use Zoom and you know, they all have their reasons for why they will only use these things and you know, we end up having to use everything. Right? Whatever the client wants, you know, that that's the platform we have to use. And I'm sure some of them who are obviously who are on it now kind of like, why didn't I start this sooner? Why didn't I could have done this, you know, two years ago, five years ago, this would have saved, you know, so much. Um, so looking at, you know, one of the things you're so brilliant at, obviously, is that high beam look at things. Where do you see offices, though, actually going? Do you see the buildings closing down, like the footprints just shrinking? I think you'll see the footprint shrink and the, in, the offices will change. I think you'll see a lot more um, meeting space and more hoteling. Mm. So I think you'll see less and less assigning an office to people. So, so if you actually look at what the floor looks like, you'll have more small conference rooms uh, and then you'll have just office space that's not assigned, right? A what they call hoteling. Right. And so I've talked to a number of commercial real estate organizations and they're already heading in this way. I mean, they, they already have figured out 
we've got to reconfigure our buildings uh, because this is what companies are going to want. You know, it, it just the days of uh, putting everybody into assigned cubes or having big offices that people are assigned to, you know, those are going to go away uh, as more and more people are either working from home or more often they're doing a hybrid, right? So they're only in the office a couple of days a week. So do you think it'll be kind of like, well, you know, we work now defunct, but like places like that, or they're just going to, for their office, say, hey, you know, just kind of pick a space and, and not necessarily be leasing spaces like at a Regis or something like that? You're going to have both. You know, I, I think you're going to have, you know, uh, you're, you're going to have a Regis in some cases, I think. Again, it might just be configured a little bit differently, you know, or you're going to have just shared space places where people can go. But but if you are a big corporation, I think less and less will you be thinking, I need a big building. Mm. You know, it's like I, I can use less space uh, and, and save money uh, and reorganize that space so that it works more for people coming in when they need to come in. Right. So how do you then now see as we transition a little to kind of the way you've been marketing and building your business, one of the ways you do so is public speaking and going into conferences and that kind of experience. How do you see the hybrid working as far as, you know, my personal preference is speaking in front of the actual people rather than doing it virtually. Uh, I don't know where you're at. I, I'm going to guess you're, you're probably very comfortable in both, but there is an element of being on, you know, in a group of people and you use technology there. You know, you use the iPad or, and you're able to communicate and have questions that way. Where do you see that going? Yeah. So it's a huge question right now in the speaking industry. Uh, you know, the first question people ask is, uh, will we go back to having in-person events? And the answer to that is absolutely we will. Uh, people love to travel. I think this gives people an excuse to go to another city, right? So they love to do that and paid for by their company. Right. And then they love to network, right? They love to get together and network. So I, I've never believed that annual events, right? You know, an association's annual event or a big company's annual event, I've never believed those will go away. You know, those, those will come back as soon as people feel safe to do it. Uh, I think smaller events, we'll move a bit more hybrid. You know, uh, I just did an event that had 50 people at it in person and, uh, you know, another 20 people online. Mm -hmm. So I think smaller events, you may see move a little bit more to hybrid models, you know, where some people will get together, some people will attend online. I think what you'll see a large growth in is video only events, but I don't think that those events necessarily are replacing uh, what used to be in-person events. I think they will augment it. So we'll see more online-only events where we did not have an event before. Mm. Okay, So in other words, somebody who's starting an event new from the ground up, the way that they will start it is as an online-only event. And then maybe later right, it becomes an in-person event. Uh, and so I kind of think that's where events go. From a speaking standpoint, I think – no question. You know, I like talking in front of people more than I like talking in front of a camera. Uh, with that said, uh, you're right. I'm completely comfortable with both. You know, I, I don't have a strong emotional need either way. And in, in other words, some speakers, if they, they need to feed off the energy of the crowd. Mm -hmm. I'm not that way. I, I have just as much energy if I'm talking to a camera back in our studio. 
Right. Uh, in fact, I have a rule. Our people never tell me how many people are watching. Right. Uh, and, and, and it's not because I care if there were a thousand or 2000 people watching. It's that I don't want to be any different if there's only 10 people watching. Right. right. So, so they just never show me or tell me who's out there. And I always talk to the audience the way I always would with the same amount of energy. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm a little bit ambivalent. The big deal is travel. Right. So when you're a speaker and I am one who has to travel all the time to speeches, you know, that's the thing is, you know, all right, well, it wouldn't hurt my feelings to have half my talks be in person and half my talks be on video. Right. Uh, Especially sometimes, you know, international. I don't mind international travel if I'm going to go stay at a country and it's a country I want to go to and stay there for three or four days. Right. I don't like international travel when it's like, Scott, can you come give this speech in Paris? And I'm flying there and flying right back, you know, the next day, you know, to do a one hour speech. Yeah. So. Well, so then now. Go ahead. Well, definitely the market's going to change. Probably won't change as much as some people think it will. uh, In that there'll still be a lot of in-person events, but there will be a burgeoning growth in video only events. And I think if you want to be a speaker who can really help the world, you're going to have to be very comfortable in both formats. Of course. And do you see, like, I I know Tony uh, Robbins had, he did the hologram and so forth. Do you see technologies like that? It's going to have more focus and people are going to experiment more with ways to make these virtual experiences more engaging and and more multidimensional if possible? Yeah, I really do think so. You know, Doug, I I spent years going to Life Church, right? And Life Church is now, I think, the largest church in the U.S. And uh, they pioneered doing video delivery of Craig's messages. And I, I went to Life Church when it was all in person. It was one location. So I, I was around when they, when they bought a second location and then a third location and when Craig couldn't drive around in locations anymore. And so he started to use video and just preach from one location and do video at the other ones. And I remember people saying, it'll never work. It'll never work. The pastor's got to be there in person. And Craig and his team tried it and it didn't seem to bother people at all. Hmm. Right. To, to have him up on a big screen. That was on hologram. That was just video. Right. And of course, now, you know, Life Church and other churches are doing that kind of thing, you know, at campuses, hundreds of campuses all over the, the U.S. where there's not a live pastor presenting and the audience is fine. Well, it is you know, it, why? It's a hybrid it, there, though, because they do have like the junior pastors. So there is some. Sure. Well, it's not like they're just the going campus to- pastor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they got a campus pastor and they got music, you know, that that it's local musicians. So so it is, it's a bit of a hybrid. And it's the same thing when you ask about, you know, holograms. Sure, you know, we're going to get better and better at technology to be able to hologram somebody so it looks like they're live. But I I think what's going to become more and more normal is you're going to put on an event, you're going to have four speakers, right? Uh, Two speakers are going to be there in person and two speakers are going to come in on video. And I think that's going to be a very normal way that you do events from now on. Whereas in the past, the thinking was all the speakers have to be there in person. And I've never understood that. You know, I I just never have. Think about the last event you and I were at together. Mm -hmm. 
right? The, 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 the great conversation event that Ron Werman puts on, you know, he always, it's, everyone has to be there in person. And, and there's no reason for that. You know, he could have two or three people be in person and two or three people come in on video. The audience would be perfectly happy with that. And with the technology now, obviously, and especially the way you did it, you already prep people for the hybrid experience because rather than just raise our hand and ask a question, they typed it in and you were, excuse me, able to answer it that way anyway, which then conditions people to be seeing someone on the screen and know that they could still ask a question. And I think that's where the, the necessity is for um, the hybridization so that people could still feel that connection, that it's not just like they're watching a recording. You know, yeah. some sort of interaction yeah. is huge. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, sorry, I had a, I had a client in London uh, last year, and they asked me to come speak. I flew over to London, gave a speech. It went really well. It was for their employees, and it went, it went very well, they, and they liked what I did. I come back home. Two weeks later, they call again and say, hey, will you come back? We want you to give another speech to a different group of employees, and, uh, and I couldn't do it. And I said, let me just video in. You know, I mean, I'll video in, I'll use Slido. They can all ask me questions. I'll be able to see them. They'll be able to see me, uh, you know, no problem. Uh, and it'll cost you quite a bit less, right? Because I'm not going to have to fly all the way there and back. You don't pay the flights and pay my higher fee. And they're, at first they're like, uh, you know, we really like having you here in person, blah, blah. It will, they eventually said, that, let's do the video. So I do the video. I interact with the audience. They're sending me questions. I'm answering their questions. I could see on their face when I was done with that, they were like, why would we ever have him come back here again? <laughs> like, right? I mean, that, that was just about as good as when he was here and we paid him a lot less money. Right. And so sure enough, ever since then, they have had me video wow. uh, with their folks. Now I, I love London, right? I, I missed the trip to London in some ways, but I would rather do more speeches for them and do them by video than do less because I have to be there in person. Well, and a good friend of mine who's a speaker, he actually, his model is when he does virtual, if it was that situation, his fee actually goes up because they're not paying. So it actually, they save money and he earns more because he's like, look, you know, you're, you're saving a good five grand or if you're, tra you know, if you're flying your other people in and all of that, like I just saved you $15,000 to not come and do it. So, you know, my fee actually just went up um, and he doesn't say it quite like that, but that's his rationale and it hasn't been an issue. And I'm not suggesting you raise your prices by any stretch. I'm just sharing another person's perspective, dealing another speaker who's been dealing with this same challenge and saw an opportunity that he was, since he was saving the company money, he was going to, you know, profit a little. Um, yeah. Yes. The other issue is if you could do more of them, now you have a volume. Yeah, well, I've definitely seen the fees are rising on video. So uh, it, it's, I think there is a bit of that dynamic out there. Uh, but I think also the speakers are saying, yeah, I don't have to travel, but I still have to prepare. And, you know, it's still, you know, the same, you know, unique, valuable content. And so I, I think the, you know, what I've seen the last three months is my fees and other people's fees are slowly creeping up, even doing video. And how have you found when it comes to marketing yourself as a speaker? I mean, you already had your, your clients already, but have you changed the way you market for your business and for speaking with all of this 
new dynamic? Not on the consulting side. On the consulting side, we were always good at working remotely with clients, and so that there's no difference there. Uh, we just do more working remotely. Uh, on the speaking side, the only thing that I do that's maybe different is I just make sure people know that we have a studio and I'm completely comfortable with video and I've got some tricks up my sleeve mm-hmm. of things we can do with video. So that's all is just when somebody reaches out now, we just give them a choice. It's like, well, I can be there in person, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, we've got a, a inventory of things we can do with video. So now let's love it. I mean, let's look at how we're dealing with then all of these challenges with, with COVID with then, you know, the political climate and all of that. How do you see technology, um, impacting and have you seen changes in the way technology is being used to influence, to get messaging? Um, and do you see, you know, some opportunity for people to, you know, improve things? Cause you shared earlier about also surprised about the negativity. How could we utilize technology for, for good at this stage? Well, uh, certainly um, there's a lot we could do with tracking pandemics. So uh, there's a real fine line between that and privacy. Uh, But I think that we got a lot of room to run on how to use technology to slow down or stop a pandemic. Uh, So I'm sure as entrepreneurial as we are in the U.S. and other countries are becoming, you'll see for the next year, a lot of new applications come out that that will be able to help stop or will better track disease spread. So uh, definitely technology will do that. Uh, I think automation, you know, uh, no question that when you send a bunch of people home to work, you start seeing what it is that you need to automate. Mm -hmm. And so there will be a ripples in the pond now for a year or two of organizations automating things. So they say, hey, the next time this kind of thing happens and we have to go emergency work from home, you know, we want to have automated a lot of these processes so that we don't have problems, you know, when people go work from home. So I think we'll see technology used to do a lot of automation, which means a lot of AI, a lot of RPA, right, a lot of machine learning. You'll see a lot of those tools get used to try to automate things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then... You know, Internet of Things has been growing for a while, right? Wearables and Internet of Things, so smart devices. Uh, I, I think we will see more and more applications of smart devices, both for health reasons, you know, tracking things, uh, but not just a pandemic health response. You know, as soon as you understand that you can use wearable devices to help with a pandemic, you're also going to say, well, if we have people in the field in West Texas at an oil 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 yard, uh, we don't want them out in 105 degrees unless they got a wearable on, so we can track and make sure that they're you know not getting into an unsafe situation. Mm. So uh, I think we'll see more and more use of Internet of Things to gather huge amounts of data to be able to tell us the status of a device or the status of a person. And so now what's so interesting about that whole conversation, when you talk about, you know, the, the trust factor and, and so forth, um, the, the humology of it, and then how this all started was with the programming of the technology, which comes from the, the human. 
how you know we we have we've had this conversation before about you know auto autonomous cars like you know how are they going to make a decision do we you know hit the kid or do we hit the tree does everyone die or just the one person die um without without infusing and not to say that technology is immoral it's agnostic it's it is basically whatever is programmed into it how how could we have some checks and balances as we do uh, that's it? that's actually that's not true that's not true which which isn't it's not true that it is what we programmed it into it. You, you got to separate two things. Okay. Uh, if there's an AI, like autonomous car AI that we've built and we've programmed it as human beings, then we have set the ethics right. in that. If you develop self-learning vehicles okay. or self-learning AIs, then we have not built the ethics in those because they're self-learning so they may go develop their own ethics. So unless we put parameters around that, there are situations now where AIs are basically creating their own ethics. And then, uh, so anyway, I just want to make sure, sure, sure. You have to be careful when you say that, that uh, there's a huge ethics problem with software, right? The huge, you know, with the ethics of the software, it's a huge issue that we've got to be careful of in many areas, including autonomous cars. I just want to make sure that you got the distinction. Yes. Well, There's I a difference personally. between I, I wrote the AI, it's got my ethics, versus it's a self-learning AI, it's developed its own ethics. Got it. Well, and I guess where I was going to that is like Ultron. Like then, you know, the, the Marvel uh, AI that granted, I guess the theory behind it, again, I know it's science fiction, but the idea that there was that amalgamation of, the, you know, Tony Stark and um, uh, what's his name? The, the other Jarvis Jarvis and, and all yeah. that, which has some fundamentals, mm -hmm. but you know, when you talk about, you know, the tr tracing and, and all of that, you know, the pandemic and then an AI says, well, you know what, the best way to solve this problem is just to kill everybody. And then we won't have a pandemic problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's the boundaries that you'd have to put around an AI, you know, the ethical boundaries. You, you'd have to be able to say, we're looking for a solution, but here's what is not a solution. And we can do that with software. I mean, we have an ability to say, we want you to look for a solution, but here is what, it, here is, what is not a solution. So these come off the table. Everything else is a possible solution. Now go try to figure it out. Which then brings me to then you have the humology aspect and, and we have a lot of human error and, and uh, decision making based on numbers and, and so forth that we can look at our history and say there have been some really bad decisions made uh, based on whatever criteria those decision makers had. And then infuse, we talked earlier, you know, your, uh, your faith, how can we start incorporating maybe a, a new level of ethics, morals, um, you know, and almost a spiritology where we're acknowledging um, some, some ecology that is kind of transcends the, the, the black and white of things. And I don't mean that in a racial way. I meant in a, a digital versus analog way. Right. Well, I, there has to be, 
a layer of ethics that gets integrated into the autonomous machines that we build. And I think that's the, the, the simplest way to think about it is to say there has to be a layer of ethics that we have to build in. Let me give you some examples. Uh, you have a robot in a factory and the robot is helping to build cars. The layer of ethic on the robot is if a human being walks within 10 feet of your swing arm, you stop. Mm-hmm. You stop moving because you can't, you can't know if the human is, is unwise enough to step right in front of your swing arm and get hit and it might kill him. And so I have a layer of ethics built into my robot that says if a human comes within 10 feet of your swing arm, you just stop, right? Uh, not you try to be careful of a human, you stop because you don't know what the human's going to do, right? So, so in software, when uh, let's say you have a lending system. So you have a piece of software like Rocket Mortgage that's, that is making an automated decision on doing a loan, okay? There has to be a layer of ethics that's built in there that says you're not going to turn down loans just because they live in, uh, in the inner city. Because if you let the AI figure out itself what loans it's going to make, it's going to do what's called redlining, right? It's going to say, well, we're not going to do it. I'm not going to do any loans in the inner city because I've had too many that go bad, right? Well, that's illegal. So, you know, there has to be a layer of ethics that says, no, you have to look at every loan on its merits and you can't look at where it is physically. So there are so many places today where we need to apply ethics where it's not getting applied in the software, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, or the ethics that are being applied uh, really need to be questioned. Uh, You know, a simple example, I'll give you two examples. Um, If you look at Tinder, right, you look at the dating apps, there's an AI behind the dating apps that if you swipe left, right, on three women, Doug, you know, that happen to be blonde because you like blonde women, uh, well, now the algorithm goes, oh, well, Doug likes blonde women. That's all we're going to show him, mm-hmm. right? So that, that is now a bias that, that, that is built into that software where they think they're trying to help you. But what they just did was narrow down the field of people you could actually have a date you know, to only blonde women, yep. which is not wise. Like, that's not smart. But, well, you can, it gets even worse if you look at predictive policing. Like uh, predictive policing has done a tremendous job of getting police to go physically be at places where crime might happen today, right? It's cut down crime by, let's say, 40% in some major cities. So predictive policing is great. Here's the ethical problem. And and I noticed one uh, city in California banned uh, predictive policing a couple of weeks ago. So the problem that we found with predictive policing is – Every time you start arresting more people in, in, a, in a certain part of downtown, let's say, then the predictive model starts saying, well, there's more and more arrests coming from that place downtown. So let's put more and more police there. So when you put more and more police there, there's more and more arrests. And so it becomes a self-reinforcing AI that just says, well, the only place you need to be is right here. And well, when, since the police are all there, then they're only going to arrest people that are right there. So what happens is, let's just say you have a predominantly white neighborhood and there hasn't been many arrests there. Well, then they never have police there. So now there's never any arrests there. And if you, have, if you keep sending police to a predominantly black part of the community, 
Well, then that's where all the arrests are coming from, right? Well, pretty soon the AI says, well, there's no criminals over in this uh, housing edition. All the criminals are over in this edition because that's where all the arrests are coming from. There you go, right? There's an ethics problem is, you know, you, you automate and you use AIs to drive behavior. And at the first glance, it works pretty well. But if you don't apply an ethics layer to it, it just can get out of control. Well, and, and yeah, it's like the, the built-in reticular activator system of, you know, of our brains into computers. And we see that, you know, with, uh, with everything, like even on Facebook, you know, the, the whole idea is whatever you engage in, Facebook wants you there. So if you're on Facebook going, arg, 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 I hate this person, that person, you guys suck. And then more people are engaging, Facebook goes, oh, that's what you want. Okay, here's more of that. As opposed to if you were going peace, love, and granola, and then Facebook goes, oh, you want more of that. Um, and, and that's like high level. And then obviously there's, there is a human element in there as well with, you know, the way they program uh, I guess what now they decide, you know, what is hate speech or offensive or whatever. And again, that's putting, doing their best to put in a layer of ethics, but then now you're back into whose ethics, by what standard are we deciding? Because, you know, because we have different models of the world, we disagree on what is potentially ethical or moral to begin with. Yeah. So you're talking about the echo chamber effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and, and yes, technology and AI can create an echo chamber effect that is not healthy at all. And again, w- without some layer of ethics on top of that, that says, hey, when Doug searches for something, I'm not going to give him all Republican stuff. And today that's the way the algorithms are built. Oh, Doug loves Republican stuff. So we're only going to show him Republican stuff because that's what he wants. Well, that's missing a layer of ethics. Right. That, that would say, no, you know, we need to at least give him 20 percent or 30 percent of an opposing opinion. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so, you know, we'll get better at this. We're not that good at it now, but but we'll get better at understanding there has to be an ethics layer integrated into almost all technology. Well, I'm hoping that we could do this on a human level, too, because it's not just Facebook that is doing that. I'm sure you've seen uh, with all the challenges today people actually saying, if you don't agree with me, go ahead, defriend me, creating their own vacuum, creating their own echo chamber of only having people and communicating people with who agree with them and vice versa, which is creating an even wider divide. And technology is supporting it. And that's such an interesting time as we watch it. I mean, that's the pain I see is, is so many people in pain and then it being propagated and pushed forward by the way they use their technology, which reinforces the very pain they're experiencing in the first place. And mm-hmm. how, how do you interrupt that pattern is, is such a, an interesting challenge. Yes. <clears throat> technology amplifies. So it'll amplify your bad behavior. It can amplify your good behavior. It'll amplify your bias right? or, or not. You know, so technology just amplifies. That's what it does. It'd be pretty cool if there was kind of like how there's a, an app or I think in the iPhone now it shows you, you know, how much screen time you had and so forth. I wonder if there would be a way or if there's a, an algorithm that could be created that actually uh, creates like a holistic view a little bit, like just kind of offering some other perspectives as you are searching something, whatever. Hey, you saw this. 
here's, you know, here's something else. Cause I find myself doing that to the best of my ability. If someone shares something and it intrigues me, I go, okay, well, that's interesting. Let me see. What is the other side of that? Like the, what's the, the, what's the other end of the, the, the spectrum here? Just so I have a deeper understanding as to what is the motivating factors behind this. Um, I don't, is there technology out there that does something like that? You know, not that I've seen a lot of, uh, if, I think that though you have to think in terms of generations, you know, the first generation was just how can we customize things so that you really like them so that our company can make money. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I think you're, you're looking at second, third generation thinking to say, you know, all right, how do we use this technology to make people better human beings? You know, and I, I'm, I'm not sure we're there yet. And how do you think this is going to, I know they're in New York, they're talking about it. I don't know if anyone has come to you about this, uh, about education and how technology is, I mean, I know kids, obviously our daughter has an iPad and she knows how to use it and, and so forth, but there's an element of, you know, sort of a necessity of being in person and having the ability to monitor, especially with young children with already have ADD to begin with just by their nature of curiosity um, where do you see technology going in education? And particularly for younger generations, because as you get older, you know, you can clearly, you know, implement some of your own personal responsibility, but when you're under 10, it's a little more challenging. I, I just think education is going to learn to be more hybrid. So, uh, and there, again, there's been an opportunity for 20 years for the for K through 12 to be more hybrid and both society being used to the model of send people to school for eight hours, working parents wanting their kids to go to school for eight hours, uh, you know, the schools being built to have people come for eight hours, you know, designed that way. Uh, lack of uh, under, lack of having every child having a device, you know. I, I mean, there there have been a handful of things that have kept us in a world of just ship them all to school for eight hours. Right. But uh, you know, I think I think this is a catalyst in breaking that down, you know, uh, quite a bit. And you know, w- there's no way this rubber band goes back to the way it was right. as far as K through 12 education. It won't. Uh, it's a lot like work from home, right? It's just not going to go back to the way it was. The question is, will it be 5% different, 50% different? You know, it'll, it'll depend on the school. It'll depend on the grade, right? It'll depend on the administration. There's going to be no set rules. But I I think what we will see is the hybridization where the school starts to figure out how to understand what kids need to be at the school versus what kids can do well on their own. Mm-hmm. and and probably less demand of you have to attend school or you are true of it, right? Because I, I think they will figure out, well, there's some kids that, you know, if they attend two days a week and then, work, you know, do their work on their own the other three days a week, they're killing it. They're doing fantastic, you know? So do we, we, do we make them come all five days so that they go to gym? You know, do we make them come, you know, all five days just for the social, you know, impact of it? So I, I just think there'll be a hybridization uh, of education of K through 12 and that this will be the catalytic event that did that. For sure. Well, it's, yeah, it's obviously clearly happening. Uh, do you see like virtual reality becoming that much more of a, 
an experience just for engagement sake, like where to keep people more engaged and focused? Is that a technology? I don't know if any studies have been done as far as the efficacy of anything in, in the VR world? I suspect it won't be live VR, you know, where you, you put your kid in the VR rig and then they're attending class. I think it'll be more, you'll see VR with specific lessons. Mm. So if you, if you want to teach a child about what it's like to be Native American, you'll send home the Native American VR app. Mm. And, and, and so they'll put it on and be able to see how a tribe lived. Right. And, and literally sit in the teepee. Right. Or sit at the fire or right. Sit during the ceremony, which will be fantastic. Right. You'll be able to experience what it's like to be a Native American in a way you, I never could when I was young by just reading books. Right. So, so I, I think that's where we'll see it. How close are we to a holodeck? We're a long way away from a holodeck uh, because even if you, you can get 360 view, but in a holodeck, you know, they were running around and yeah. doing all kinds of activities and interacting with the deck. And we don't have that, right? So the the, the closest possible? thing, uh, not anytime soon, not the full holodeck. Cause I know what you're talking about with the holodeck and I know what they did on a holodeck and we're not going to replicate that anytime soon. Right. But I, I think I think not having to have a VR rig and being able to walk into a room that's 360, I think that we could do. Yeah, that, I mean, actually, just come to uh, visualize that. I, we picture we make these green screen rooms. There's no reason why we couldn't have it all be, you know, between holograms and, uh, I guess, imagery, like just plain old 3D imagery on the printed, not printed, but, you know, uh, projected or inject right. it, that would uh, be, um, which is fascinating right. um, because that would be one of the ways, because that's the challenge I see with, with young ones is the engagement and keeping them focused. Because the other thing, I even notice with our daughter, I mean, she's five, but her attention span, even when she's watching, you know, the iPad, sometimes she only watches, you know, 20, 30 seconds. She's like, okay, next. Okay, next. And, and there's uh, that if they have the ability to do so, they will. Um, so how do you keep them so engaged that because we're kinesthetic as well, like there, we have all the different learning styles, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. How do we right. integrate all of those, especially when we have some favorability, like some, you know, I'm more kinesthetic than, so I need to kind of do it to feel it uh, or to learn it more effectively. Um, which is just insane. Um, so when you look at all of the, the things that are happening right now uh, and things have been speeding up, do you see any things in particular that we should be sort of aware of that, you know, as a, as a person, um, whether it be personally or professionally or spiritually with um, how we can embrace the, the speed at which things are happening at this point? I, I'll tell you the number one thing uh, that I think people need to do is that is really consciously improve their learning ecosystem. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about rivers of information, you know, that the, the internet and technology has created an ability to have rivers of information into your mind. And I think one of the things people are, 
the opportunity they're missing most right now is that they're not very conscious about the rivers of information into their mind. And so, uh, you know, I was just on vacation with some family and some of them uh, sat and watched Fox News for about eight hours a day. Hmm. Right. That's a lot of, so, you know, yeah. So it's like, well, you, you get, you get points for, you know, watching something where you're learning, you know, uh, however you get minus points that that's the only thing in your river yeah. <laughs> and it's bias, right? Because almost any channel is biased. So, uh, I think the number one thing with technology that people are losing an opportunity is consciously saying, all right, I got X amount of time a day to be able to take input and to, 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 to learn. So what does that river look like? What does that learning ecosystem look like? And we do a lot of work at our firm on what is a learning ecosystem? How do you build it? What's a river information? How do you build it? How do you become conscious of all of this? How do you maximize this? And let's say splitting it 50-50 personal and business. So, so I'm going to spend half of my time uh, focusing on my career and how do I learn more from my career? The other half of my time, how do I become a better human being? Uh, and so as I look forward, you know, that, that's, if somebody says, hey, Scott, what's your advice for me? And I don't care if you're a young person or an old person, my number one piece of advice is going to be make sure you consciously look at your learning ecosystem and consciously understand the river of information coming into your brain and craft it architect it so that you're learning things that are valuable to learn and don't don't stick things in your brain that are not valuable because it is it's a waste of time well and that becomes a virus inside your brain because it know, does it, yep. it, it, it distracts you it, it really does it, it just distracts you well, which then brings me to kind of like a little back to what you're talking about the ai and and the swing arm and and so forth and then obviously we've heard of computer viruses and obviously we have human viruses. An interesting analogy and model on how we deal with viruses with humans and ultimately computers in, in strategies to, uh, I guess, clean the system as it were. How do you see virus security and technology you know, developing, considering that an AI could also be a virus? Well, we have, we have cyber criminals now starting to use right. AI uh, to be able to attack people. And then you have security people building AIs to try to defend. <laughs> and so uh, the sophistication level will just grow and grow and grow is what we're going to see on both sides. I mean, we're going to see more and more sophisticated viruses or attack vehicles and more and more sophisticated uh, defense. Uh, and what we've seen for a little while is the criminals are a little bit better than the security people. Mm. And so that's why you see cybercrime has risen so much, right, over the last decade. Uh, and there are, re there are reasons for that, why, why the criminals move a little bit faster, you know, than the security people can move. Uh, but there's no question that intelligent attack vehicles uh, and then intelligent security vehicles are fascinating, right, to look at what they're doing right now. 
and it's it's kind of overwhelming when you think about how much we rely on technology these days and how that's kind of it's like it's a subculture kind of going on and and how do we how do we mind guard on our tech and and on our experiences knowing that is is bizarre like just a whole other mindset because we can't even trust sometimes when the phone rings it could be there we get a text and it's like oh you know it's like how how does one not live in a bubble and like you shared earlier with you know kind of being peaceful and all the chaos and all of that when we're constantly being inundated where we've got to stand guard yet at the same time we've got to embrace the technology mm-hmm yeah, we're at a bad time right now. I think we'll get a lot better at being able to authenticate something that's happening, right, uh, or blocking something that we don't want. So it, we, we'll get better and better at this. But, yeah, it's like, I, I don't answer my phone. I mean, if, if it doesn't come up with a name of somebody I know, I don't answer. Yeah, me neither. You know, the end, period. You know, and I think a lot of people have gotten that direction. So, you know, a lot of we're developing ways to make sure, you know, that we don't get abused. Uh, But that's tough for, you know, older folks and, you know, people who don't understand the game and don't understand technology as well as you and I do. Well, I actually, you know, what happened yesterday, just happened yesterday, uh, an auto dialer for my mortgage company wouldn't stop ringing the phone. Like, cause I guess that whole mindset as well is when there's people, if they're, you know, you get nervous cause if someone, you know, calls and maybe they were calling from another number and you don't pick up, they're like, Oh, I just got to call them again. They're going to know it's urgent. And they're going to finally pick up. And that's what I did after the fourth time. I'm like, good Lord, man. And then I listen and then I'm like, oh, no, this is an auto dialer. And then it's like, Hey, this is Donovan from, you know, uh, Lone Depot or whatever. You know, do you know that? I'm like, Oh, come on. Really, dude. Um, so they're not even dialing the phones. The auto dialers are doing it and they're getting smart. Yeah. Yep. That's true. So with all that being said, we've covered so much. Um, any final sort of observations, words, anything that your, your heart is, um, you know, weighing to, to share. Cause I know you're an extraordinary deep person and, and I know we've, kind of gone all over the place. I just, uh, I, I'm really blessed to know you and, and thank you for sharing your time. And I just wanted to know if there's any final bits of, of information or anything that you have going on that you want to share that we can, you know, get information out there so people can, can work with you. Uh, well, I, I, look, the, I, let me tell you what I want to share, you know, as far as people working with us, anybody who wants to, uh, uh, or needs to be able to look into the future and deal with technology and use technology to to try to be a you know a, a good tool in the world. Uh, you know we love to help folks like that. Uh, and if somebody needs a speaker who uh, has a, a good inventory of edgy ideas about where things are going in the future, love to do the speaking. When you say any last thing to share, the the most important thing I think for me to share probably would be a message of hope because. Uh, you know, this, this year has been chaotic, and it, it's going to continue to be chaotic, uh, I think, for the rest of the year. Uh, and I really see, you know, a lot of people what's having a negative impact on, you know, just a lot of anxiety, uh, a lot of frustration, um, a lot of discontent, a lot of divisiveness, you know, uh, and, you know, I, I guess the biggest last message for me is 
Like the, I grew up in the 60s, okay? If you were around in the 60s, we've seen this all before. Because in the 60s, you had the Vietnam War. Uh, you had all the protests against the Vietnam War. Uh, we had a president uh, that, that in the early 70s, you know, had to leave office because of Watergate. Uh, you know, we had a lot of divisiveness between the hippie generation and their parents and the older generation. Uh, you know, we we saw worse than this because uh, at Kent State, they were shooting protesters. You know, I, I mean, in the 60s, we had the same kind of volatility mm-hmm. and we lived through it and we grew. We grew, we learned, we improved as a society. Uh, I just hope people who maybe have, did not live through the 60s or do not have that kind of context uh, that, that you look at this year and you don't completely panic and lose your mind. Mm. Uh, you know, the, there are reasons to be peaceful and there's reasons to be calm and there's reasons to be hopeful uh, because what we are going through now, uh, it, it, seriously, it is less chaotic than what we went through in the 60s. Uh, and, and we will get through this. We will learn a lot of really good lessons. Uh, we will improve humanity after coming out of this year. And uh, that would be my last message to people is, hey, you know, let's let's be spreaders of a message of hope mm-hmm. uh, and get people to have a perspective uh, that all is not lost, even though sometimes you look at the media and you feel like all, you know, that all might be lost. This is just a chaotic year. And some some years are like this. We didn't expect a lot of these things to happen. We have an interesting confluence. Uh, we just need to learn our lessons, make improvements, and then move on. Amen, brother. I mean, do you think that the, it appears worse than it is in context because of how quickly and how pervasively the the information is shared? And um, mm-hmm. dare I say that news has become more of an editorial as opposed to reporting. So people are kind of told what to think based on whatever consumption, as you shared earlier, rivers of information they're getting, and that hopefully it'll get over with quicker too? No question that that social media and traditional media have completely changed things. Uh, We went from a world back in the 60s where there there really was very little news I mean, you, you had to watch TV at six o'clock or 10 o'clock. I mean, there was, or read a newspaper. There was very little news to a world now with an overwhelming amount of, of what can't even be called news in most cases. It's just opinion, like you said. Mm-hmm. And so we went from a world where you had to make a conscious decision to attach a little bit to the news to now a world where we have to make a conscious decision to detach. Yeah. Right. And I think people haven't made that adjustment in a lot of cases, and they are sucked into a whirlwind of way too much input and way too much unhealthy input, and it's causing a lot of depression and a lot of anxiety and a lot of frustration, and I feel really bad, badly for some of the people around me, uh, you know, who I see, who I can tell they are very strung out, you know, and and I just want to say to them, it is not as bad as it appears, <laughs> you know, it is not. Uh, and if you will remain calm and just work through this, uh, as we all need to, uh, you know, you, you will find a brighter day on the other side of this. Amen. I mean, I, I do hope it, it's so crazy because while we're doing this, you utilizing the very technology that is kind of sucking us or some out of the game, 
is that I think if people did spend way less time on, you know, on this technology and pick up a book, pick up, you know, uh, an opportunity to educate in other ways uh, instead of just, you know, Googling or, you know, getting sucked down that rabbit hole, because again, those algorithms are going to influence. Um, but if you could actually just do some, some quiet time and, and connect with people again and really come from a space of love and honor and respect and, and assume the best about people, we could definitely start in you know, turning the ship a lot quicker as well, because I think there's a lot of, you know, that confirmation bias and assumption going on about others without really getting to know them, which is why I did do this is to expose people to brilliant minds and hearts to go, Hey, look, here's, here's some other ways of thinking. Here's some other perspectives and try it on. If it works for you, great. If not, that's okay too, but at least give it a shot and understand that, you know, the people who have an opinion, it is coming from a positive place. The outcome is what we want to focus on, not the process on how we get there. Because as you know, there's all different ways to ultimately get to the end result, but we, we all need to be on the same page on that result. And I think that's where I think the, the conversation could best be suited is like, where do we want to go? Like, well, how do we want the world to be? And then start worrying about how we get there instead of just worrying about how and not worrying about what and why. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree. I agree, Doug. We need a little bit more being proactive and a little less being reactive. Yeah, 100%. Well, brother, thank you so much. I love you for who you are, who you aren't. Uh, love to your family. I know that, you know, things are, you know, crazy and you guys are, are navigating it. And I truly appreciate you. And, and of course, if there's any, anything I could do for you, my resources are your resources. And, uh, you know, just continue the, the positivity and moving forward. Well, Doug, I feel the same. Thank you uh, for visiting. I love the visit. Uh, hopefully, we, uh, we uh, gave some people some interesting ideas today. I believe we did, brother. So, thank you so much, right. and uh, we will see you again shortly. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for stopping by and hanging with us and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast right here and we look forward to serving you even more remember download your free guided hypnotic meditation at guidedhypnotic.com that's guidedhypnotic.com where you'll get your free anxiety busting meditation we look forward to serving you, and if you have any questions, comments, please feel free to reach out. All right, we love you for who you are and who you aren't. God bless.